This is Stena. Thank you for tuning in to the Identity in Me podcast, which is brought to you by ERI Design, a boutique marketing agency with offices in Portland, Maine and Worcester, Massachusetts. This podcast explores the ways in which people express and experience various aspects of their social and personal identities. I'm joined by Russell Weatherspoon, who is currently the Dean of Students and a longtime instructor of religion at Phillips Exeter Academy. He is also known for making a cameo appearance in one of my dreams where he baptized me. That's a true story. He was gracious enough to accept my invitation to discuss how he was socialized by his environment and the time period in which he lived. Enjoy the episode. fair share of awesome people on the podcast, but today I bring to you a legend, a man who is loved and appreciated by many because he's such a dope spirit. He also has the most firm grip you will ever come across. Russell Weatherspoon, welcome to the podcast. How's it going this evening? Uh, well, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk with you. We have talked about having this conversation a long time. Um, it's good to know that we finally will settle in and do that. Right on. And so um, before we proceed to grip, man, like do do a lot of people know you for this very firm grip? Uh, well, when you say a lot, it would be narrow to the people who have been in that situation. Um, <laughs> what do you mean? I mean that um, I don't grip uh, many people. As a grown man and as a colleague, I have experienced the grip. Um, but more often than not, it comes in the form of a firm handshake, but you just can't miss how tight that grip is. So um, anyway, we're not going to spend too much time talking about the grip. People know what I'm talking about. They're probably already laughing about it. The other thing that I want to note about Russell here that um, people know him for is that uh, he is quite the singer. So this evening, I'm I'm going to see if he's willing to give us a couple of bars. And I want you to follow suit, Mr. Weatherspoon. Mother, mother. That's, that's so nice. <laughs> I'm love trying to get you to sing. That. I'm trying to get you to sing what's going on. Marvin Gaye, let's go. Oh. Father, father, father. Mm. We don't need to escalate. Mm. Is that enough? War is not the answer. For all in love can conquer hate. Great song, 1971. Check it out, people, if y'all don't know. Another thing that people know about Russell, or at least that I appreciate and I've noted over the years, is his willingness to have relationships across race and the broadness of his connections. We actually share this in common. And I'm curious to know how that came about. And essentially, this is a colloquial way of asking how you are socialized around race. But before you provide me with that answer, sir, how do you identify? 
I'm African-American. Have you always been African-American? Were you a Negro? Did you identify otherwise? When did you adopt African-American? Uh, when I was a child, uh, people like me were either Negroes mm -hmm. or they were colored people. When I oppressed to find out what the nature of the difference was, because both terms were used with equal frequency when I was a child. So they were essentially synonymous. But you did have to stop and wonder, in the case of um, colored people, it, that implied that maybe there were people without color. Yeah. Um, obviously, we spoke about white people. Certainly during that period, there were lots of places in the United States uh, which had, as you know and others know, for instance, water fountains, positions in uh, buses, certainly uh, rooms or not rooms in hotels with signs that would talk about how uh, those spaces, those pieces of equipment were only for white people or they were or, or they would say, you know, not for colored people. I remember colored people being used more often in that situation than Negroes, but uh, Negroes certainly was a uh, term that was used interchangeably by a lot of other people. Uh, for instance, uh, the National Association of Colored People, which was begun uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, or um, we think of the many references to, to Negroes made by many, 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 many different types of people, not least of all, uh, you know, Martin Luther King on the one hand, uh, uh, President Johnson or President Eisenhower or President Kennedy on the other. So as a child, one just simply accept, accepts these terms. Now, as I continue to grow into my adolescence, uh, then we got other terms. Some of them came and went. Uh, for instance, as we approached 1963, 64, you began to hear some people talking about black people on the one hand. Uh, as time went on a little bit further, black became um, the more common term in many sectors. Stokely Carmichael brought that into the lexicon, right? In the late well, uh, well, he was one of the people who brought it. Stokely Carmichael certainly brought it up. Malcolm X uh, brought it up. Others did. Stokely Carmichael represents a political position around civil rights that would have been using black as a way of saying, um, you know, we're not colored people. We're not Negroes, even though, of course, the word Negro generates from the word black. Yeah. Uh, but... But, but we are black. And that was part of the larger black consciousness uh, brought to the fore, again, by the likes of uh, Malcolm X in large measure, Stoker Carmichael and others um, in another. Uh, more time passed. And uh, African-American. And Jesse Jackson brought that into the fold, right? In the 1980s, in the mid to late 80s? He was one of the people who brought it forward. When African-American came to the fore, as you can imagine, 
I'm speaking nationally now, we went into this protracted discussion, debate, uh, quizzing back and forth about what, what were black people calling them. We settled, in some respects, for a while on black, started to roll back to African-American. That brings us now to this time period when you have both terms sitting out there. Yeah. And, you know, interestingly, um, I used to use the terms interchangeably and I don't as much anymore. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, black is the term that I use to refer to the race and um, African-American I use to uh, refer to an ethnic identity that is more centered in the United States. So people whose parents or grandparents were born in the United States or if they were born and acculturated in the United States. I refer to them as African-American, but even that's changing because I found that people from West Africa are um, now using the term African-American. So before you leave the topic, whether they're young people or whether they're uh, full adults, turning to people who who are coming from African nations and including those people prominently in your in your analysis of diversity and equity yeah turning to those people and counting their heads so to speak and and not asking the question you know how many indigenous african-american people uh, are you counting oh absolutely i ask that all the time when we are looking at demographics in the community i'm always asking the question of have we checked for how many African-Americans, people whose grandparents, great-grandparents, whose history goes back hundreds of years in the United States, how many of those people with that ancestry do we have in a particular community? I'm always asking that question, but we have not created a filter to capture that, unfortunately. However, I have to pause on this particular topic. We could probably report another conversation about that. That's something to discuss in and of itself. And I got off track here, but before I get back to that original question I asked you about intercultural communication, so there was a time where Black people in this country were referred to as colored people, and as I'm hearing it from you, that was a pejorative term. Negro was not, however. Actually, I don't know that I would go that far. I would suppose that that depends on where you came from. Uh, Let me just go back and say that when we... When we, my parents, grandparents, people in the neighborhood, when we were talking about the the NAACP, we knew we were talking about us. Yeah. When we were talking about Negroes, we knew uh, we were talking about us. As a matter of fact, my my grandmother's side came to the United States from Barbados, which would have been under the the uh, British Crown yeah. when she was a girl. Um. She had heard the term colored people, if I if I'm correct, colored people is a British term. Okay. And it references all non-white peoples um under under the British crown, whether those people were in India or whether they were whether they were um in in China or they were in Indonesia or they were from Africa. All of these people um who were not Euro white uh, were colored. So when she got here to the United States with her relatives, 
for her, Negro as a term was a great shock. And for a little while, she was wondering to whom it referred mm. because she did not grow up mm. uh, with the term. So, again, my point would simply be these words and terms depend on, you know, w- where you grew up and how people used the term where you were. I can, I know that there are people of uh, African descent with a long ancestry here in the United States, in the United States for, whom the, for whom the word Negro was problematic because of the way uh, whites in particular um, would slide that um, term Negro, yeah, um, yeah. you know, in the other direction. It's kind of like how some folks feel now about when black is used versus blacks, the blacks being the pejorative and black people not being the pejorative. So it often matters how we use terms because that ultimately will determine how it's received. You grew up in this period, this period of enormous racial strife. And so when I see you interacting with ease across race, I asked myself the question of how and when did this come about? Because I would imagine growing up in the 60s and seeing what you saw, even perhaps in the late 50s, I'm not going to age you too much here. I would imagine that you perhaps had certain feelings at the time about white people. I'm assuming here. So this is your opportunity to talk a little bit about how you uh, were socialized around race and subsequently how you came to have these relationships across race so seamlessly. I grew up um, in the city of New York, in a portion of the city of New York, uh, a portion of Brooklyn, where where there were many different, uh, um, many different types of people, if you wanted to think ethnically. For instance, you, one could speak about white people. But one also had to face the fact that the white people that one knew in the neighborhood I I grew up in uh, hailed from a variety of different places. They came from parts of Germany. They came from Poland. They came from Russia. They came from Italy. We had a few that came from England. We certainly had those who had come from Ireland. and even in the mix of all that, one was uh, very clear that there were there were Jews um, in the neighborhood too, who by skin tone you would think, well, these people are white. Yeah. But it didn't take long to figure out that some of these other types of white people that I just ran through um, had a disregard for Jews. I mean, they might look white, but seemed pretty clear that a number of the different kinds of white people didn't think of the Jews as, you know, uh, what should I say, equal or as May I jump in here real quick? I had a very similar experience in middle school. So at this middle school, um, I got there, it was predominantly white, and there was one Jewish girl. And very quickly, I noted that the other white kids were always making fun of this Jewish girl. And they would just call her Jew all the time. But and I know Jew is not pejorative, but the way it was used suggested that they were saying it to deride her. 
And I remember at one point asking somebody like, what is the beef with Jewish people? I'm not understanding that. Like, why do y'all keep attacking her because she's Jewish? Because as I'm looking at y'all, <laughs> I can't tell a difference. And um, the answers I got were never very clear. So it's interesting you noted that as far back as when you did. I'm sorry, continue. And the only, again, the the, the difference, if I may uh, move from what you just said, is that um, my neighborhood, which had this uh, interesting cross-section and collage of people, uh, the Jewish community in my neighborhood was actually quite significant. Yeah, A lot of those people came from various portions of Europe or Russia. They were, uh, an awful lot of them, were uh, worshipped in a uh, in a very conservative um, you know Jewish background so the religious life in in Brooklyn and New York was strong at that time people thought of themselves in terms of their faith position yeah. and where they worshiped this goes back to a period where even among the the Christians of any kind Catholics were uh, knew they were different from Protestants, certainly, but various kinds of Christians also understood themselves to be different. So, for instance, Methodists and uh, uh, people from the Orthodox community or Baptists or Lutherans or, you know, you go down the list. These were people who would not actually go to one another's worship services uh, because they kind of thought that that was a wrong thing to be doing. Hold on, if I may interject here. So your proximity to all these different types of white people, and in this case, Jewish folks, allowed for a cultural exchange that I'm thinking you're saying led you to subsequently be able to look past some of the things you were seeing on television and hearing on the radio. Is that correct or an well, assumption? When I got to the place where I was teaching, I began to realize, uh, you know, that there are many people, both in this country and outside this country, that don't have much exposure to different kinds of people. Mm. Um, for instance, even in the city of New York, I began to realize that there are some people who are living in uh, ethnic and religious uh, enclaves, even within the city of New York, where they really, at that time, were certainly not venturing out of those enclaves they would they would stay there among the people who supported you know their cultural their way of life partly because frankly they thought it was safest uh certainly within the history of of new york for instance uh germans would have known what it was like when i say germans i'm talking about germans in the 19th century they would have known what it was like to to feel some degrees of fear mixing with other kinds of people, including other kinds of white people, yeah. because under the right circumstances, that you know, that could be physically dangerous. So with that, with that range, it also forced me to deal with the fact that you can know good white people and good and no regrettable white people, and the same thing was true of every other kind of group you want to think of. The proximity really helped you realize that there were good people, as you just said, and there are people who were not worth the time. You came up in New York City in this very diverse community. 
which dispelled a lot of notions that you may have had about the other. And then at some point in your life decided, you know what, I want to leave this great big city with all these different people and go live in Exeter, New Hampshire. I know that there was a stop in between at Harvard. Then you came to Exeter, New Hampshire. I'm curious to know when you got here, how did you experience that initially as an African-American and how did you maintain your commitment to intercultural dialogue in those early years here when I'm thinking it was hard for you? There were there were challenges, but by the time I got here, we were very well settled in our our personal philosophy and our way of approaching life. Uh, it when I got here, I was uh, essentially thirty six, thirty seven. There was no hope that I was going to uh, start thinking about the world differently because I was here. Yeah. Um, I I brought who I became here. Mm-hmm. By the time I was 17, I had made a, a very clear and emotional decision that when it came to race, uh, especially when it came to, to violence related to race, that I was not going to be a person who was going to get in, involved, first of all, in hating white people just off the top. You know, by the time I was 17, I had made up my mind that's not the direction that I was going. And Uh, where did that influence come from? And what year are we talking? That crisis of thought or that moment when I was very, very clear, I had to make a philosophical choice. I had to make a theological choice came when I was uh, 17 um, yeah, you said 17, but what year? I'm trying to do some math here, trying to figure out how old you are. Oh, I'm 73. Oh, wow. Okay. And see, I'm telling y'all, he don't look it. Um, he doesn't feel it. And I'm going back to the grip here. So we're talking late 60s. You made this choice. Um, was yeah. this influenced by your parents, by friends, the congregation you were in? All those things were influences. Of course, not all those influences were going in the same direction, particularly among, uh, for a moment, I was trying to remember if we would have referred to ourselves as black people at the time. Some of us would, some of us wouldn't. The intensity of the debate and the argument that went on in the late 60s among us, just normal people on the ground, other, you know, other black teenagers talking to one another uh, every day. Uh, the intensity of that was really very, very powerful. And it was not something that your average person could just simply say, oh, well, that doesn't matter, or I'm not going to get involved, or, you know. No, this was something you really did have to think about. And you had to think about and talk about how you wanted to confront and deal with it. You couldn't escape it. Uh, So that's why I say, you know, by the time I was 17, I finally came to uh, the point where I realized, okay, I I have to make up my mind. Which way am I going with this? Among the powerful influences was certainly, uh, for instance, listening to Martin Luther King speak on something very, very similar. When he said, uh, literally, he said, I have made up my mind um, and I am going to love 
And when he talked about loving, of course, he wasn't talking about something out of a Hallmark card. He was talking about we are facing the virulent, hateful, homicidal rage of so many millions of white people in the country. Uh, this is not a matter of like putting up placards or something, which certainly they did, yeah. or throwing rocks through windows of buses that had black kids on it, which certainly they did, um, or planting bombs, which they certainly did. Um, this was a, a matter of having to face the fact that we, as black people, are outnumbered. Um, we're, we're, you know, if, every now and then I, 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 I'm struck by these people who step up and make it known that their purpose is to create a race war yeah. here in America. I mean, right up until this very week, yeah. we had another example. So this has been going on for a very, very long time. So in that context, um, to be able to um, realize that people like Martin Luther King had said, look, we have a we have a series of principled reasons why we are going to engage this level of homicidal hatred against black people the way we're going to do this. And we are not so stupid as to suggest that this may not get us killed, yeah. too. But part of what we're trying to do here is to expose um, the depth of this of this virulent hatred, the ways in which people who are liberal are not serious in their taking this thing on, which has been part of American, you know, society for 400 years since there. Okay. And so many years later, Mr. Weatherspoon here has chosen love over all else. It is what he is known for in this community. And like I said, I was really moved to have this conversation because of what I have seen in the nearly 10 years that I've worked with him, just this propensity towards embracing the other. And we very much share this in common. Uh, I did not experience the 1960s. I'm a lot younger, but I chose love, if you will, or understanding because of my own experiences um, that came out of trauma. When I was very young, um, five years old, um, a white man threatened to shoot me. Um, when I was five years old, I got jumped by a group of white boys at a predominantly white school because I was the only black boy. And so by the time I came out of those situations or that situation in particular, because it happened in the same area, I made a decision without realizing it at the time. I didn't state it at six years old that I was going to choose love or understanding, but I knew that I never wanted another kid to feel like I did. This doesn't mean that I had a clean slate through elementary school and didn't make fun of other kids or act up. But in general, when I saw somebody being picked on, my tendency was to defend them and protect them because I wanted somebody to do that for me. And that has carried over into my adulthood. But Mr. Weatherspoon, I appreciate your taking the time to have this conversation this evening. It was illuminating, enlightening, and don't be surprised if I hit you up again to continue some aspect of the conversation we were having this evening. Well, uh, by the way, I appreciate our being able to talk together and I appreciate more our ability to work together. 
to try to, as it were, if we can, model and maybe persuade others that love actually is probably uh, the only hope mankind mm. can hang on to. And speaking of love, um, it would be contradictory if after this call, you don't allow me to hug you when I see you on the path. I'm just so shocked. You won't let me hug you. (laughs) That you would put that out there and let the rest of the community know that you have this very strange thing going on. We are the product of our environment. The inputs often dictate the outputs. We also make choices that are a function of existential considerations, and for each person, that varies. Everybody doesn't choose to love when they experience hate, which is understandable. I know I've had many instances where I felt like reconsidering my philosophy about the importance of intercultural dialogue, but an event or interaction usually occurs that resets my compass. For Russell and many others, they were inspired to love in the face of hatred by Dr. King, particularly in that era. And as Russell states, he had additional influences that informed his philosophy. What were your influences and what's your philosophy? And is it evident to others? If you're feeling the podcast, please follow it on Instagram at identity underscore n underscore me. Until the next episode of Identity and Me, keep reflecting. Identity and me.